Well, do take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus for our scripture reading this morning, Exodus 27, and then we'll have a few verses in chapter 30. And while you're doing that, uh, let me just uh, say what an honor and privilege it is to be with you this weekend. I've enjoyed um, being able to speak on a topic that is near and dear to my heart, that is corporate worship. So uh, with many of you, we began that discussion uh, Friday evening, and we're going to continue it now as we look at a portion of the Old Testament concerning um, the tabernacle. And uh, I'm so grateful for uh, Dr. Golliger and the session's invitation to come and to bring God's word to you today. It's great to be back. Uh, The last time that um, I was at 10th Church, I was standing down there saying, I do to my bride. Uh, So that was almost nine years ago. And a great memory, and even for a preacher who so respects 10th Church, being in the pulpit won't top that moment. So, um, But it is good to be back. Carrie Ann and I have been enjoying saying hi to some old friends and, and meeting new ones. So please don't be shy to, to come up and say hello to us after the service. We'd love to reconnect with you. Um, but for now, Exodus 27, you'll see that if you don't have a Bible, I'd still love you to turn there. And so you can use the one in front of you, and that's page 67. And as we quiet our hearts to give attention to God's word uh, read, let's seek his face and ask his blessing upon that reading and preaching. Let's pray. Lord God, you have given your scriptures for our benefit uh, that uh, in these pages uh, we would find uh, what it means to find you what it means to follow after you, that you have given us this book to be our guide to heaven. Uh, But Lord, we are uh, hopeless without your help. Would you send your spirit to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive this word being what it truly is, not the word of man, but the word of almighty God. And Lord, would you cause us to as we hear and and consider these truths from scripture to uh, inwardly digest them, that we would read them, that we'd mark them and learn them, that it would all be for our good and for your glory. And Lord, I do pray that you would now send your Holy Spirit to touch the lips that would preach your name so that this servant could preach a better sermon in your strength than he ever could in his own. I ask this for Jesus' sake, amen. Exodus 27, the first 19 verses. God's instruction to Moses concerning portions of the tabernacle. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. 
And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it's carried. You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twine linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long. Its pillars twenty and their bases twenty of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. For the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits with 10 pillars, 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen, 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework and shall have four pillars with them four bases all the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze the length of the court shall be a hundred cubits the breadth fifty the height five cubits with hangings of fine twine linen and bases of bronze all the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. Now turning just a page or two to chapter 30. We're reading about the courtyard. You'll notice in the furniture in the courtyard, there's something else there, and that's the bronze basin, which we read of beginning in verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the tent of meeting, or when they come near uh, the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. The grass withers, the flower fades. This is the word of our Lord, and it remains forever. Well, in the variety of passages that we're considering, this morning we're looking at what took place just outside of the tabernacle proper, and not the, the holy place, not the Holy of Holies, I think we're somewhat familiar with, with those things. If we consider the tabernacle, we, we're aware of the Ark of the Covenant and, and the mercy seat and, and what took place inside that tent of meeting, that tabernacle proper. But we're looking at what took place just outside of that in this um, enclosed space called the courtyard. We don't perhaps know a whole lot about the courtyard. We don't reflect upon it all that much. Maybe it's because we think, well, what important thing could possibly happen in the courtyard? All the action is taking place inside. Maybe we think that the courtyard is, is sort of akin to Michael Collins. Maybe that's a name you remember. Hopefully not, because the point of my illustration is that you don't know who he is. Um, uh, Michael Collins was the gentleman who, who um, orbited the moon in the lunar module while Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin got to walk on the face of the moon, right? Is that, is that the courtyard, right? All the, all the good stuff is, is happening inside and, and people in the courtyard are just kind of 
uh, are just kind of relegated to this uh, B team, second string. They're sitting on the bench, kind of like Michael Collins. Is that, is that why we don't consider the courtyard? Well, if that is the case, I want to dissuade you of that notion because the courtyard teaches us something wonderful about the character of God and his heart for sinners like you and me. That's the first thing we're going to ask this morning as we explore this text. The first question is, why the courtyard? Why, why is there uh, this large outer perimeter around the tabernacle? And I want to tell you, I'll give you the answer right now and then we'll unpack it. The courtyard is a sign of how wide the arms of God are open to receive sinners like you and me. The courtyard is a, is a little picture of the big heart of God for sinners. How so? Well, the courtyard was designed so that the multitude could gather together for corporate worship. It's about 150 feet by 75 feet. If you don't have your cubit to feet calculator there, I've given it to you. 150 by 75 feet. Uh, That's roughly the size of four tennis courts put together. Okay, so that gives you an idea of the size we're talking about. So that means it's a space large enough for for um, numerous worshipers, hundreds of worshipers, to to come and to go. It's space enough for dozens of priests to be ministering. And then, of course, there's uh, the countless stream of animals who are being brought in to be sacrificed and then offered up and, and eaten in some instances. We could say that the courtyard was a place that was abuzz with sanctified activity. Israelites entering, exiting, as they offer to God the praise that is due his name. And it's important to note that the courtyard was a place where all could come to worship God. Later in the days of of the the temple, even more specifically the, the second temple, and during that intertestamental period, uh, more courtyards are added. There's courtyards for Gentiles and courtyards for women and the courtyards for the men and and for the the priests. But there's nothing of that in the instructions here of the tabernacle. Moreover, in Chronicles, there's nothing of that in the instructions for Solomon's temple. The courtyard was the place for for everyone to come and worship together. Families are worshiping together. Men and women aren't separated. It's something that we enjoy now, again, in the new covenant as that other temple has been abolished. God's law in designing the tabernacle was so that it could accommodate a host of people. This was the place for everyone to worship at God's house. No, not in God's house, but at it. The Holy of Holies was for the the high priest and the holy place just for the priest. But the courtyard was for everyone. It was the place for all people to gather. And one Old Testament scholar gets to the heart of this text by writing, he says, there's nothing sacred or symbolic about the dimensions of the courtyard other than the fact that its size provided for corporate worship. That's the point. He says, this signified that in the Old Covenant, God accepted and delighted in the group adoration of his people together at a single location. And this is a model of heaven where all the grand historic assembly of the people of God from all places, ages, will together praise his magnificent name forever. The courtyard's a picture of that. The courtyard is teaching us simultaneously two things. The first is that God loves corporate worship. He loves what we're doing right now. It brings a smile to his face. God loves corporate worship. The second thing, though, it's teaching us is that we, we need corporate worship. Our souls survive on this, 
this opportunity to meet with God in his place with his people. It's fascinating as you kind of zoom out and consider the story of the tabernacle in general in, in, the, in, the, in the flow of redemptive history, something significant is happening because uh, there was a time when it was uh, when it was easy, we could say, for God's people to meet with him and to worship him. That's what life was in the garden. The garden was the first uh, corporate worship center. But because of sin, what happens? You know the story. Adam and Eve, they're cast out east of Eden. Sinners cannot come in the presence of a holy God. And just to drive home the point, the Lord bars the way back into the garden. To make it especially clear, he sets a century there, Right? Uh, cherubim, the cherubim with the, the sword, the flaming sword that wields every which way. I mean, the picture is so clear. If you want to come this way, if you want to get back to me, you will die. You will die. That's the penalty when sinners come before a holy God. And yet then, then we get to the tabernacle and we see God is, is sort of reversing course. He's, he's starting to allow his people to come back to him, into his presence. It's really interesting. If you have your Bibles open still, you just look back to chapter 26 in Exodus, and you'll see, though, that that the Lord is still reminding his people that they haven't entirely regained what was lost at Eden. So, for example, in chapter 26, we're, we're, we're given the construction of the tabernacle proper where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat would have been placed there. And then verse 31 tells us how the Lord guarded the entrance into that most sacred space. Look there at verse 31. There's, there's this, this shield. It's a veil. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. And then notice this. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. What's the image? What would an Israelite have thought of as they saw pictures of cherubim at the entrance to the Lord's presence, they think of Genesis 3. Oh, there's danger this way. There's death this way. We still can't come entirely. That's why only the high priest could go in only one time a year. But then, as the people are thinking, maybe we can never get back to God, instructions are made for the, for the courtyard. And did you notice verse 16 of our text? I want you to put yourself in the shoes, the sandals, excuse me, of an ancient Israelite. And consider what verse 16 would have meant for them as they're, as they're relayed the, the instruction for building this, this portable worship center. And they're wondering, can we get back to God? We, we heard about this veil in front of the Holy of Holies. It's got the cherubim, but then verse 16, for the gate of the court, there shall be a screen. There's a door. There's a door, a gate into God's presence. Oh, but it has a screen as well. It also has a veil and it's made of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. Exactly the same as the Holy of Holies, but, but not. It's missing something. The flaming cherubim. This is the way back to God. Into his courts. And so the courtyard preached this message that God wants his people to come to him. You need to know today, friends, that God's glory is just too big for one worshiper. That's why when God says he's going to dwell among his people, he doesn't build a prayer closet, he builds a courtyard, he builds a tabernacle. He builds this house with a huge yard for people, plural, people, to come to. The Christian faith is a public 
faith. Is it, is it personal? Yes, it has to be personal. I can't believe in Jesus for you. Your parents can't do that for you, boys and girls. Your Sunday school teachers can't do that for you. Your pastor can't do that for you. You need to believe. You need to be able to say with, with Paul that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. Yes, it's personal, but it's never private. It's never private. The primary way, not the only way, but the primary way we are to come into God's presence is through corporate worship. And the Israelites, they understood that. You know, for all their foolishness, they understood that meeting with God wasn't about meditation, it wasn't about solitude, but about thunderous worship in the company of the saints. And so they longed for God's courts, specifically his courts. Think of some of these texts from the Psalms. Psalm 65, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Blessings reside here in your courts. Psalm 84, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Psalm 100, which we sang earlier, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And so to an ancient Israelite, God's courtyard was the place to be. And I wonder, do you have that same sense about church? Is it the place to be? Do you have that sense of corporate worship? Is it the highlight of your week? Or does it get crammed in with all the other activities and the chores and the things that need to get done? Is church the most important thing you do any week? Or, or is it something expendable if, if something more important or pressing comes along? You see, what we do on Sundays, where we are, how we feel about it, that says something profound about our relationship with God. You need to know, friends, he wants you. He wants you, yes. Christ died for you, believer. He he died for you. But he didn't die for you alone, and he doesn't want you alone either. No, what brings a smile to God's face is the assembling of his blood-bought children to sing his praise, to offer up prayers, to sit at his feet, and to hear his voice. David Clarkson, English Puritan, who ministered along John Owen, I wrote a treatise on this subject. We heard some of it Friday night. I'll just give you this one sentence. Public worship is to be preferred above private. Why, he says? So it is by the Lord, so it should be by his people. This is not to say that private worship isn't beneficial or that God isn't glorified through it, but it shows us where our priorities should lie in our spiritual life. It's not in the closet, it's in the courts. And moreover, it's what goes on at church on Sundays that feeds and fuels our private and family devotions throughout the week. Without corporate worship, these others die. We come to church because we need it. It's where we hear from God. It's where we feast upon him. It's where our faith is most strengthened. And since it's this corporate reality, that means the people here matter too. The people actually matter. You have to ask yourself, are you getting all of the benefits of the assembling of the saints uh, that it offers you if you dash out the door immediately as the benediction is pronounced or you slip in five minutes after the call to worship? If you don't get to know the people that you worship with, if, if you don't make any effort to connect throughout the week, we need to learn, learn to linger Learn to love getting to know your, your fellow pew dwellers. 
Because otherwise, it could be, I might suggest, it could be that you might be uh, merely trying to get your, your private worship fix out of the public ministry of the church, right? I come to church because I like the preaching, I like the music, and, and then that kind of sets me for the week, and then I'm good. But I don't need these people. I don't need to volunteer for things, certainly. No, we're, we're a body. We need each other to function. And so the more you get to know your fellow members and love them, here's the, here's the wonderful thing, friends. Listen, listen. The more you get to know your fellow church members and love them, you will learn the lesson of the courtyard. That lesson which is that God has a big heart for big sinners. His heart is so big and his arms are open so wide that he can wrap me up. Jonathan Cruz up, sinner that I am, worthless wretch that I am, foul that I am. He can take me with all of my sin and he takes me entirely. He doesn't love me in part. He loves me in whole. All of his heart is for me and yet his heart is so big that he can love me with all of his heart. Me, sinner that I am and he still has enough in his heart to love the rest of you. That's the character of God. That's the compassion of God. And we learn that in corporate worship. Now, when an Israelite would enter into the courtyard, they would see two things, a bronze altar and a bronze wash basin. And so our second question, the first was, why, why the courtyard? Now we want to ask, why the altar, why the basin? Well, these confronted the worshiper with a sobering reality. Even if there was access to God, it was a limited access. The courtyard, we've said, symbolizes the big heart of God for sinners. Well, the altar and the basin, they, they symbolize God's big standard, his high standard of holiness. And so, yes, they could be near God, but they couldn't get as near as they would like. Even the material uh, of the basin and the altar proved the point. Maybe you heard it. It was said over and over again, the passage we read, what everything is made out of. It's made out of bronze. Everything inside the tabernacle, Gold. Everything outside bronze, in some cases silver, either way, lesser materials. And it represents a fundamental truth that you need to know, which is the further you get from God in life, the less your life will glimmer. So we have the altar. The altar was for sacrifice. There are four horns. We read in verse 2 of chapter 27, four horns on the corners of it represent the animals that would be laid there. Also had a functional purpose of being able to tie those animals down to the altar. We're also told in chapter 29, we didn't read this, but that sacrifices were to be made continually every morning, every evening. Leviticus 6.13 says, fire shall be kept burning on that altar continually. It shall never go out. And so there's always smoke rising up out of the camp of the Israelites. Why? Because there's always sin rising out of their hearts. God's wrath and his justice have to be continually satisfied. The altar is the first thing they saw once they entered into the courtyard. In other words, the first thing they learn about corporate worship is that they're not worthy for it. And then there's that wash basin. Now, this wasn't for everybody. It was just, it was just for the uh, priests, but we're told that they had to wash themselves as they were to offer sacrifices or before they would enter into the tabernacle lest they would die, we're told. God is pressing home the idea of how dangerous it is for someone defiled 
or impure to come into his presence. So even if a sacrifice is made, the sacrifice can remove the guilt of sin, but it can't remove the corruption of sin, the, the pollution of sin. Well, there's a corollary in, in, our, in our doctrines of justification and sanctification, right? When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are justified. It's a once for all act of God where he pardons your sin, pardons your guilt. You now are on good terms with God, so to speak. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been justified. But just because you, you're justified doesn't mean you're not s- sinful anymore. It doesn't mean that you don't have sin. No, there's still indwelling sin. And so we have this beautiful doctrine, sanctification, which teaches us that once we're justified, we will be sanctified. And slowly but surely, it's not a once for all act like justification, but slowly and surely and steadily until we reach glory, that indwelling sin will be mortified, will grow in holiness. But sanctification teaches us that even if we are justified, we're still impure. And so too, the need for washing reminded the priests and the Israelites who watched them just how defiled they really were. And so now at this point, the courtyard might seem a little confusing to us. Is it tricking the people of God? Uh, was he holding out on the one hand this offer to come close, right? There's a courtyard and there's a gate. There's a doorway. There's no cherubim. You can come. I want you to come. It seems like he's offering that on the one hand, but then you have the alternate basin which says, you can come, and then the basin says, but actually I don't want you to. You're too sinful. Was the courtyard false advertising? We take false advertising very seriously in this country. Many businesses have, have found themselves in trouble over this issue. I minister in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I made the mistake of telling the last service I'm from Kalamazoo. I am a proud PA resident, born and bred. The Lord had other plans though, so we're in Michigan now where there's 12 inches of snow on the ground. Do you know what else is in Kalamazoo besides 12 inches of snow? It's a, it's a small pharmaceutical company. It's called Pfizer, maybe. Don't worry, we're not going there today. We're not going to get into that. But back in 2005, Pfizer was in the headlines because um, they, <laughs> a judge had ruled um, their claim that one of their products, Listerine, um, was medically baseless. They made a claim about Listerine that was medically baseless. This was the claim that was on all the bottles of Listerine. Just as good as flossing. That's what they had. And somebody took them to court for that. The judge ruled against them. And they had to spend $2 million rectifying that error, which included deploying 4,000 employees to go all over the country into every store that sold Listerine. And they had these stickers that they would then put over top of that false slogan so that they wouldn't get in trouble for this. You know, I'm thinking, just pull the thing off the shelf. What are we doing here? But this is how seriously we take false advertising. Is, is the courtyard false advertising? Is it this billboard, right? Or, or this sign, picture this sign on the highway. It says, you know, this way, God wants you. And then you get there and the door's barred. Just kidding, he doesn't. Because you're a sinner. We have these 
two conflicting ideas that God wants his people to draw near, but that also he wants them to stay back. What are we to make of this? Well, there's no trickery here. There's no contradiction because God actually wants both of these things. But you see, now we are in a position to answer our final question this morning. We've asked why the courtyard and then why the altar, why the basin. And now I think we start to know the answer for this question. Why Jesus? Why Jesus? You see, our Savior is able to, to bring into beautiful harmony what would otherwise seem to be intention. On the one hand, God's big heart for sinners, and on the other hand, his big demands of holiness. God's love for us is so great that, that he declares, I so love the world that, that I gave, I'm willing to send my only son. Whoever believes in him won't perish. They'll have everlasting life. And, and, and so we see the big heart of God in the incarnation that he sends his son into this world. And, and Jesus is for the world. He is for everybody. No, not everybody is saved because not everybody takes that free offer. But the offer is there. Salvation is extended to everyone. Today, you need to know it's extended to you. You just have to believe. You just have to take Jesus. But maybe you're thinking, Pastor, that's all well and good. Even if I accept this gift to come near God, won't I be met with barriers along the way, barriers to his presence because of my sin? Is it a genuine offer you're making? Maybe you don't mean to to be deceiving me. I mean, you're a guest preacher. We want to think the best of you, but maybe you don't get it. You don't know my sin. You don't know what I deal with. Sure, it could be for somebody else, but could it really be for me? Will I be kept out to the outer courts, banished to that brazen world, never to see that golden life on the inside? Hear me today, friends, when I say the answer is emphatically no. No. God's offer to the world in Christ isn't only to come to him, but it's to be made right and pure through him. Christ makes us fit and able to respond to God's invitation. This is what we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. The author there says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How can we enter the holy place of of worship? How can we get near to God? Well, according to this text, we have confidence to enter by the blood of Jesus. It's the blood. You know, in the old covenant, if if the people wanted to worship the living God, there always had to be blood. Every single time, day and night, we read of that. Right? Keep that fire burning. Keep bringing on the sacrifice because of sin. But not anymore, Hebrews 9, 12. Not with the blood of goats or calves, but with his own blood has Jesus entered the most holy place once for all and he has obtained an everlasting, an eternal, an unbreakable salvation for all who believe in him. The blood of bulls and goats, we could say, has a poor shelf life, but not the blood of Jesus. Did you realize the immense blessing that it was today? 
that you walked into those doors, you came to church today, you found your seat, and you did not have to get bloody. That's because of Jesus. How can we enter the holy place? Because of the blood of the lamb. And that blood doesn't merely clear us of our guilt, justification, but it cleanses us from our sin. It makes us pure. We were told there in that passage in Hebrews 10 that in Christ our hearts are sprinkled clean and our bodies are washed with pure water. First John picks up the same idea. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son cleanses us from all our sin. And so what the altar and the basin stood for, Jesus fulfills. That old way is done now that he has come. And that's why that, that question that the old gospel hymn proposes is, is so important. And so I'm going to pose it to you right now. Are you washed in the blood? In the soul-cleansing blood of the lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? That's a question you need to have answered and do not delay in answering it. Walk out those doors today saying, hallelujah, thank the Lord, I'm washed in the blood of the lamb. Because if not, you cannot come near God. You cannot enter his presence. But if you believe in Jesus, you can. We enter the holy place because we've been cleansed through faith in the holy one. We're, we're hiding beneath the blood, so to speak, and we get safe passage. It's our belief in the good news that makes us capable of, of worship. And so God says, come to me. And friends, when you come in Christ, you can actually get to him. It's no trickery. It's not a bait and switch. There's no false advertising. You can get the whole way to him Because faith in Jesus makes us holy and makes us pure in the eyes of God. And that's what matters. And what Christ has done for us should make us long for the corporate courts of worship more than any old covenant saint ever did. And so I would posit to you, my friends, that it's the realities of the new covenant of the gospel that make corporate worship all the more to be desired Because it's here that God has deigned through the ordinary means of word and sacrament to make his salvation known. Uh, It's here where we learn about our our new and better mediator, Jesus Christ. It's here where we can be with God and, and not get bloody. And it's the fact that here we see God that makes church beautiful. Talk about in the Psalms, worshiping the Lord and the, the beauty of holiness, Liam let me in the other uh, morning to take a look at the church, which for the most part looks the same, but there's been some painting done since the last time I was here. Glad I got here after that was done, and the scaffolding is down. But it's beautiful, isn't it? But is that what makes church beautiful? Is that what makes what we're doing beautiful? Is it, is it the architecture, the painting, the windows? No, no, no. It's that when we come through the merits of Jesus Christ, we meet with a beautiful God. That's what makes church beautiful. And who would want to miss that? Who would want to miss that? 
C.S. Lewis, in his book, Reflection on the Psalms, writes this. He says, I want to stress what I think we need more of. The joy and delight in God which meet us in the Psalms, even if they're loosely or closely connected to the temple or the tabernacle. So he's saying, we need, it. We need to get the heart of the psalmists in terms of their desire for worship. Why? Listen to this. These poets knew far less reason than we for loving God. They did not know that he offered them eternal joy, still less that he would die to win it for them. We know this. And yet, even so, they express a longing for him and for his mere presence, which only comes to the best Christians or Christians in their best moments. They long to live all their days in the temple so that they may constantly see the beauty of the Lord. There it is, Psalm 27, he's quoting, verse 4. He goes on to list a few more passages. Their longing to go up to Jerusalem and appear before the presence of God is like a physical thirst, Psalm 42. From Jerusalem, his presence flashes out in perfect beauty, Psalm 50. Lacking that encounter, their souls are parched, Psalm 63. They crave to be satisfied with the pleasures of his house, Psalm 54. Only there can they be at ease like a bird in the nest. And they say that one day of those pleasures is better than a thousand elsewhere, Psalm 84. And he's saying, if this is what the psalmist of the old covenant thought about worship, what should we think about worship now in the new covenant? If we truly understood the blessing that's offered to us in worship, nothing could keep us from being in God's house on God's day with his people to attend the means of grace. We would never arrive late, nor would we ever leave early. We would want to spend every moment afforded to us with our Savior and with his people. Nothing could keep us from this place. You all got the email last night that said, you know, uh, 8th Street to 20th Street, they're going to be shut down and it's going to be really hard to get in the city. You know, plan for um, traffic, plan for extra hours because of, you know what's going on later tonight. And isn't it just the, the inclination of the human heart to say, that just sounds like too much. Um, you know, I, th- I think they still do that live stream thing. I could just stay at home. No! We go to worship because it's here with God's people that we meet him face to face. And nothing can top that. Oh, the church needs a revival that we could match and excel the desire of the world to get to their sporting events. We need that and more so to get to church. Because the blood of Christ has made it possible. Do you recognize, friends, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not scolding, this is, this is my own sin as well, that when we, when we neglect the assembly or we don't think it's important, do you know what we're saying? We're saying that the blood of Jesus isn't that important. What a blasphemous thought. Lord, forgive us. No, we should relish every second where we experience the big heart of God for sinners like us and rejoice that those big demands of holiness have been met in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We would want to learn from him and sit at his feet every chance we were given. We would want to come together with one another and enter his throne room by prayer every time we had the opportunity. If I could say even a word just to the parents briefly, it is this place that you want your children to love, to grow up to love. This place, not, not the programs, not Sunday school, not youth group, although th- those are good things, but it's this place, what we're doing right now, that you want them to see this is what it's all about. Why is that so important? Well, as your children grow up and as they leave home, and God forbid, perhaps for a time, they wander from the faith 
If you've done this, you know what will happen? They will feel homesick. Because they would have been taught their whole life that the household of God is my house and I need to come back. So, no amount of extra sleep, no special outing, no excuses that we could conjure would be worth missing even a single word from our God spoken to us in grace to his people. A word that calls us, a word that cleanses us, a word that comforts us, a word that commissions us to serve him when we recognize and believe that this is what Christ has opened up to us, we will say with conviction and with meaning, along with the psalmist, one day here in this place is better than a thousand anywhere else. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would now be so kind as to send your Holy Spirit that he would be the after preacher and apply the words that we have heard to our hearts and produce in us the fruit that you long to see, the affection and the desire that you long to see from your people, a desire to be with you whenever you invite us. Lord, would we run to you, especially in worship, And in doing so, would we be fed, would we be fueled, would we be built up? For it's here where we receive your renewing grace, and for that, we give you endless praise in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.